This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 147 of the Dressage Radio Show, brought to you with the generous support of Draper Therapies. Welcome to the program. On this week's show, we hear from American rider Heather Mason, who has just received a $25,000 grant to help her in her professional career. And we also get a monthly training tip starting this week from the New England Dressage Association. But first, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and I will be back in just a second. Hi, this is Kat from Draper Therapies. Draper Therapies features therapeutic products for horses, dogs, and humans. Our feature product of the week is our Draper Therapies Dressage Saddle Pad. The Draper Therapies Dressage Saddle Pad features a wool and polyester back, which goes against the horse, which is really super at wicking away moisture. In humid and warm climates, it works very well to keep your horse very dry underneath, and when you take the saddle pad off of your horse's back, it stays dry. The therapeutic value in the products are made from Salient, and Salient is the polyester base, but what's great about it is is that it washes, dries, bleaches, and you'll never ruin the therapeutic value of the products. It all has been clinically proven to increase circulation and reduce pain. So for those horses' backs that might be a little bit stiff, might have kissing spine, or a little bit girthy, these saddle pads work really great. All of the Draper Therapies products are made in the United States at our mill in Kent, Massachusetts. The Draper Therapies saddle pads come in either a large or an extra large size or in white or charcoal. The retail value of these products is either $159 or $179 depending on the size. Please feel free to visit drapertherapies.com for more information or email us at info at drapertherapies.com. My first guest this week is American rider Heather Mason, who has just received the 2012 Carol Laval Advanced Dressage Prize worth $25,000. Now, the purpose of this prize, which is established at the Dressage Foundation here in the States, is to provide financial assistance for coaching and training to a talented, committed, qualified rider whose plan is to reach and excel at the elite international standards of high-performance dressage. Well, you can imagine winning that and what a prize that would be. Well, let's get Heather's reaction to this and how she plans to spend it. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you. A wonderful announcement for you. A life-changing moment by winning this award. Yes, this is very exciting. I'm really hoping to get some real focus done on the training now. And and it, it it does make a huge difference to any dressage rider, doesn't it? Uh, because that always seems to be the struggle when you're trying to make it in, you know, as a professional and and set your goals on the team. Uh, tell me, tell us a little bit about the business that you have there in New Jersey. And I must say, I'm I'm very impressed that you survive a New Jersey winter to do your training. Yes, well, fortunately, this year has been very nice up here, so it's not been too bad. But I run two farms, Flying James Farm and Stone Horse Farm, both on Sutton Road in Tewksbury, and um, have probably 
60 horses at those two barns combined. Um, a lot of them are young horses or horses that are retired or growing up still, so they're not that, there's not as many in training. Um, but, it's it, you know, we did a lot of, work, a lot of work done in the winter. Now, what do you do about competing up there? Do you, do you travel down to Wellington at all for any of the shows, Heather? I have not yet, and that's part of what I'm hoping to do with this grant is at some point travel down to Wellington and do some showing for the selection trials for the World Equestrian Game. Now, has always has dressage always been your chosen discipline, Heather, or did you dabble in anything else before you became a professional? I, I dabbled. I started in pony clubs, so I dabbled in eventing as well. I've also done some jumpers, but dressage has always been my passion. Which pony club were you in? Spring Valley Hounds Pony Club. Oh, right. Now, where did you grow up? Tell us, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. and if it, what, Did you have horsey parents? I did not have horsey parents. My granddad used to have horses. But I grew up actually from 6 to 11. I was in England, and that's where I started riding. And um, then we came back over here, and I started with the Spring Valley Hounds Pony Club. So what's the background to that then, Heather? How come you grew up uh, as a child in uh, England? My dad worked for American Express, so he had been transferred over there. Oh, I see. So you you started to do some riding there. Tell us about where you were based, because we have a lot of listeners in England who will be curious to know. Uh, we were in Sussex, and um, I don't know. I was very young at the time, so I don't remember much about it. <laughs> <laughs> so what what actually what brought about the the horsey uh, interest then whilst you were over there? I know obviously it's very horsey, but w- w- what was the catalyst for you to start getting into horses? I think it was something for us to do on the weekend, and my, as I said, my granddad had, was always into the horses, and I just always loved horses. So you did a little bit of everything, and then uh, decided that dressage was for you. What was the turning point in your career? I had a pony that didn't like to event, didn't like to go out the cross-country course. So sometimes she'd win if she'd go around, and other times she wouldn't. And um, I turned her into a dressage pony, and she won the national championships in 1984, the last time they had the national championship. Um, And then I got a trainer mare, Limerick, my first real warm blood. And she also was not a great jumping horse. She'd hit the jumps and then land on three legs. So I focused on the dressage with her as well. So did you have some mentors at that time, riders that you, you know, aspired to emulate? I worked a lot with Irma Hot. I worked with Marilyn Payne through Pony Club. And I've always really gotten along well with Landon Gray. As as we all do, of course, Landon are popular with uh, so many people. Now, tell us a little bit about um, the current arrangement you have. You, you, I understand that you, you're planning to take uh, Warsteiner, your top horse, isn't he, to train with Lars Peterson and uh, Alfredo Hernandez. T- tell us about those plans. Okay, well, right now we're still putting everything together. But Alfredo and Lars both come to New Jersey to do clinics, so we're going to keep doing clinics with them. And then hopefully towards the end of this year, I'll take Warsteiner and a couple of my other horses to join him and go to Lars for a month, probably before the Florida season. And then the following year, I'll go down to compete. Tell us about uh, the horses that you have uh, currently or will be showing once you get started, Heather, apart from Okay, I have Warsteiner, who mm-hmm. is finishing the small tour now. Um, he's, got one, he's got two qualifying scores for the Festival of Champions so far, and I'll do one more show with him, but I'm hoping he'll make that. 
And then that will be his last um, intermediate show, and then he will move up to the Grand Prix. Well, he'll train some more before he moves up to the Grand Prix. And the other horses I will be seriously competing this year are Respect, who is my Grand Prix horse, who is still developing, but he's a very slow, physical mature and mental mature. He doesn't like to concentrate too much. And then I also have an, another small tour horse, Glenn Emerald, who was laid up last year, but he's back in full swing now, and so he'll be competing again. And then I have a young horse, Zar, who's just turning eight, and he's just moving up to FEI. He was horse of the year last year at third level. And which uh, breed do you prefer, and where do you typically like to get your horses from, Heather? I ride all breeds, but I seem to end up with mostly Dutch horses. Do you know why that is? I think they're a little lighter and easier off the leg. And mentally, I think they work very well. Terrific. So how many horses would you have in your barn right now then? Well, the two barns that you have. I have close to 60 horses between the two barns. Do you really? And how many staff to handle all of those? Um, I have a variation of girls. I probably have five total that we, you know, flip around as far as duties go. Terrific. So now you, you touched on your long-term plans here. What, where, where would be the first shows that you would go to come the spring season, Heather? Come spring, I'll probably start early May. We have a local show just about an hour here from Buck, is Bucks County Horse Park. That's just a one-day show. That's normally where I start the horses. And then I'm trying to pick another warm-up show before I hit um, the Memorial Weekend CDI in New Jersey. Right. And you'll be aiming to go to the festival, will you, in June? Yes, I'm hoping to go to the festival in June with Warsteiner. Just just with Warsteiner, okay. Just with Warsteiner this year. Right, because, of course, you were named as the alternate last year, so you've had it to the Pan Am game, so you've had a taste of what that looks like to get that close, haven't you? Yes. How does that feel? It was it was a lot of fun, and the training camp that was held here in New Jersey with Ann Gribbons was extremely good and very helpful. And do you enjoy that kind of condensed sort of pressure cooker environment, Heather, where you know it comes down to, you know, final moments and uh, final final inches of training? That do you revel in all that? Do you or just take it in your stride? Well, fortunately, I didn't put too much pressure on myself. I kind of take things one step at a time. And Steiner was a horse that was new at the level, and he got did so much better than I expected him to that I was just happy for anything last year. All right. Well, what a wonderful uh, launching pad for this uh, season ahead. And so this $25,000 prize then will enable you to go training where you need to train in order to move up uh, to where you want to be and hopefully make the team one day. Yes, it should be very helpful. And I'm sure you uh, are enormously indebted to Carol Lavelle. Uh, for establishing this fund and I believe that there have been so many people that have donated to this fund now to keep it going now it'll be sustainable for years to come for potential team riders Heather uh, I did you got that uh, awarded to you didn't you it was presented to you in uh, Wellington recently wasn't it yes it was uh, presented at the Palm Palm Beach Derby and it was really wonderful the Dressage Foundation and Carol and Tom Lavelle have done a great thing with this fund it's really very helpful well i hope it helps you to realize your dreams heather and i want to wish you the very best of luck and uh, this season and the years ahead with all those horses my goodness we can expect all kinds of things from heather mason no doubt okay thank you very much
And you can find out more about the grants that are coordinated by the Dressage Foundation by visiting their website at dressagefoundation.org. We begin a new series now of monthly training tips that are going to be brought to you by the New England Dressage Association. Well, joining me now is Anne Gumptill. Anne, welcome to the show. Hello. Tell us a little bit, Anne, before we talk about our topic of this week, um, what your role is with uh, NADA. New England Dressage Association sponsors a series of lessons with trainers in the New England area where we donate a series of lessons, and it's for either an adult amateur or a junior to be able to access an instructor that they may not normally be able to access and for them at a discounted rate. So we donate our time, and then the NIDA member, whether an adult amateur or a junior rider, pays a fee to NIDA, so it becomes a fundraiser for NIDA, and it becomes an outreach program where some of these riders who may not normally travel out of their regular show area or where they live, the region where they live, they can get a feel, an easy way to get out to a different instructor. That's a really useful way to do it, isn't it? Because you should explain, I think, Anne, exactly the geographical area that you cover because you're one of the most prominent uh, GMOs or group member organizations of the U.S. Dressage Federation up there in New England. Tell us a little bit about the geographical area that you, uh, you cover there. Sure. I'm in southern New England, so we are close to Long Island Sound, about two hours from New York City, and we are about two hours east of Boston. So Connecticut, Long Island, New England covers Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire, and many NIDA members are outside of the traditional New England states. Also, riders who want to belong to a GMO that has a broad spectrum of programs, we have a lot of members in New York State as well and Long Island. Well, well we, each week we're going to do a topic with you, each month rather, a topic with you, and uh, we're going to kick off with something that you came up with. Tell us uh, what you have in store for us. I think what's to- a good topic for this time of year is how to set goals for the year or for the season. And I thought of it because of getting ready to get our students out in the show ring. But I also have a lot of students who do not show or show a limited amount. So it is important for all of the riders to be able to set goals as to where they, first of all, be able to assess where they are in their riding and where they'd like to be in their riding and then create a roadmap of how to get to where they want to be. Well, that obviously is very important to set yourself uh, goals. And even, you know, if you're amateurs, professionals alike, it is uh, one mm-hmm. of those aspects of uh, looking at the bigger picture and having a sense of your destination, where you're heading. So uh, give us some tips around that then, Anne, but what, what people should consider when, they set it, when they're setting their goals. Well, first of all, it makes them take a, a look at themselves as to where are they in their riding and where would they like to be. Uh, We try to assess if they are doing the level of riding that they'd like to be or if at that level do they have the quality of horse that they want to go compete. If they do not have competition goals, how to have challenges in front of them that you reassess on the short term and the long term. Um, And we've also seen more 
people revisiting not competing with the economic downturn in our business, uh, but to be able to have those goals to work for because it's a wonderful enjoyment every day to be able to go out and ride the horses, but it's good even if you're not competing or if you have a horse that you know will only compete to a certain level to have a goal of where you want to be in a month, in six months, and in a year from now. Yes, exactly. And we will look at if it doesn't, if, again, if they're not competition riders or competition horses, we then look at it in the big picture as to where do they fit in the scale of training? Uh, what are things that they need to work on to improve their strengths as riders, improve their partnership with their horse? Whether And looking also with spring, there's always renewal, especially here in New England, which we did not have as hard a winter this year, but it makes you think about um, the big picture and where you'd like to be. We also have to look hard at rider fitness, uh, the horse fitness and the rider fitness with a lot of us coming out of indoor riding all winter, those of us who haven't gone south for the winter coming out of riding indoors in the indoor arena is a very different environment than riding out. And we try to include a lot of hacking in our program to encourage the horses to be out of the sandbox and to encourage the riders to be comfortable riding out. But it also helps with the horse's fitness, even just an extra 10 to 15 minutes of walking before the ride and or after the ride. And we're lucky enough to be in an area there were a lot of hills, so we use hill work as that too. Because in the winter when it was too icy, we were indoors and we would get creative with uses of cavalettis and things to keep the horse's mind fresh and to strengthen some muscles that they would not be able to use just doing their regular flat work. So, And with rider fitness, um, I try to have my riders have, an, if not another sport, at least another activity that can be complementary to their riding that they can do when they're not at the stable, that they can do on a day that they might not ride, that at least helps keep them supple and, and fit so that when they go to a competition, they're not tapped out to the bottom of their physical ability or the horse. Yes, that's just as important, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, of course, you have your uh, climatic challenges in the winter too up there, don't you? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> but you all survive and you come out in the spring and ready to go get them. Now, when, when is the first competition that NADA organizes this spring, Anne? Actually, the New England Dressage Association Omnibus is not yet out, but there is a recognized show that I know that will be at the end of April um, in Connecticut, in southern Connecticut. So, And that has new the last few years because that can often be a challenge. It's actually the third weekend in April this year. It can be a challenge if we've not been able to get out much to be outdoors and ready to compete in our first month of being back outdoors. Um, but the first one, it will be in just about a month from now. Right. Now, do you used to have snow on the ground still, or have you, like most parts of the country, not had a by relatively us. Easy, easy winter? Um, yes, we had a mild winter, so it's not been by us. Now we're challenged with a bit of mud outdoors and getting the outdoor footing ready with the spring rains. Right. Well, hopefully spring will be just around the corner for you, Anne. I want to thank you again very much for being part of the Dressage Radio Show, and we look forward to catching up with you next time for another one of your tips. Thank you. And now for part one in a series of extracts from Paul Balasic's book, Dressage for the 21st Century.
Dressage for the 21st Century by Paul Balasic, published by Paul Balasic in 2001. Introduction If at the beginning of the 21st century one takes a perspective view back to Pignatelli's school in northern Italy in the late 16th century, it is easy to make an assumption that our riding has been considerably watered down. During the Renaissance, the exploits of Greek horsemen from an earlier era acted like a slow-burning catalyst, and noblemen from all over Europe went to Pinnatelli's school. Graduates and colleagues such as Pluvinel of France, Lunison of Germany, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Vargas of Spain, the Duke of Newcastle from England, and Labru of France, literally went on to inscribe the principles that formed the core and the genesis of dressage riding. There were no nationalistic differences between these riders. They were one. They were obsessed with style, grace and virtue. They were engrossed with technique. They were both scientific and artistic. They loved their horses and they jumped. How they loved their airs above the ground. A little later, in the Baroque era, their students and students of their students rode in lavish carousels and founded some horses so sound in their fundamentals that they are still alive today and have not been improved upon. This was the era that produced men such as Eisenberg, who was not only a great riding master employed by Charles V, the sovereign who commissioned Fischer van Erlach to build the Spanish riding school, but also author of a gorgeous book of artwork, some of which can still be seen today at Wilton House in England. Nowadays, most equestrian professionals throughout the world work in utilitarian schools, often small and privately supported. If a school opens up today, it will be lucky if it lasts as long as whoever founds it. Few people in the world train their horses in the airs above the ground, even the chief trainers at the Spanish Riding School have more normal private training stables. These function above and beyond the trainer's duties at the Great Winter Riding School. In the recent past, a European World and Olympic champion competition rider relied heavily on his family and produced his mounts under a demanding business schedule in a modest school. Yet, before we develop an inferiority complex in comparison to the Baroque and earlier specialists, we should perhaps consider another perspective. In so doing, we should also remember that it was, in part, this exclusivity which eventually contributed to the end of the Baroque era. If a rider-trainer takes up the figurative perspective from the Baroque, looking toward today, I think a case can be made that our current work is not inferior if we present our best efforts. From that viewpoint, then, our work of late may not seem diluted so much as distilled. A certain consensus evolved from Xenophon, the students of Pignatelli and their colleagues. This took place along academic, physical and spiritual lines. My intention is not to trace the historic advance from the Baroque era to the present. There are several outstanding books that have already done this. Instead, my intention is to produce a training manual for the horse and rider that could not exist without this consensus, which forms that which are commonly known as the classical principles of dressage. 
The ideals presented will not necessarily be my own, but some will be. In general, I feel that these principles need to be presented again because they are in great danger of being misunderstood and lost. In a memorial eulogy for the great dressage rider Rainer Klimke, one of the more influential riders and trainers in the last hundred years, Colonel L. van Dierendonk said, on the occasion of his last seminar symposium in the U.S., the point Reiner kept trying to make to Jan, my wife, and myself was that this generation of competitive dressage riders, instructors, and trainers was lost. Too many gadgets, too many artificial aids, too much force, too much emphasis on winning, and not enough emphasis on the basics. Too many ruined horses that are paying the price of personal egos and ambition. I don't want to think Reiner Klimke really believed this. He helped too many young people. His own children were riders. He had too much invested. I think this was and is a powerful warning precisely because he had so much invested. He did not stand alone in making this criticism. In 1941, in his masterpiece Horsemanship, Valdemir Sonig stated that outside the Spanish riding school and the castle at Budapest, there were probably only one dozen Grand Prix horses. Now, some 60 years on, teams of Olympic level can be fielded in dozens of countries and there are thousands of horses capable of Grand Prix movements. In the last hundred years, there have been two main forces shaping dressage riding. The first, which is quite new, is the International Question Federation. Formed in the early part of the 20th century, this body developed the rules that are supposed to govern dressage competitions. These rules, now about 80 years old, were written by the Frenchman General de Carpentry and the German General von Holzing. Michel Enrique, a world authority on classical riding, is a man who has severely criticized competitive riding. Nevertheless, he has said of de Carpentry and von Holzing, and I agree with him, that these two men gave a veritable synthesis for the rules which stated that there should be a code of conduct on the part of the judges and that this code should be respected. They have even infused poetry into these rules. Unfortunately, these rules are far from being followed. Within the long history of dressage, it is hard to overstate how revolutionary was the idea of turning it into a sport was. One might draw an analogy with a group of people getting together and deciding to make ballet a sport. In the introduction of Robert Gaskovich's book, Ballet, A Complete Guide, he talks about this matter. Not for all its athletic dimensions and evident physical prowess can we ever confuse the art of ballet with the art of any sport. Athletic activity aims for quantity. The winning score becomes the bottom line. Aesthetic activity aims for quality. A beguiling, fine-grained experience motivates the going on. In sports, the form the athlete shows is sometimes taken into consideration, but it is never the consideration. The athlete will say to hell with form in order to achieve a quantitative result. The dancer will not. Among a group of artists, such an idea would, of course, have been rejected. Exhibitions, yes. Recitals, yes. Performances, yes. 
but a scorecard counting the number of pirouettes or PF steps, impossible. However, for a group of military men devoted to upholding rank regardless, men who lived and breathed, advanced or retreated on constant appraisal reports, whose own lives and those of others depended upon unconditional acceptance of orders that even detailed their daily tasks, this was not such a stretch. Show jumping could easily be calibrated to pick a winner. Cross-country followed from their familiar cavalry exercises. So why not dressage? This despite the fact that all the important precedents had insisted that school riding was an art. High school horses were not prepared for utilitarian purposes. High school was an end in itself. Guaranieri has chapters on racing horses, carriage horses and hunting horses. These are separate endeavours. He says, Can someone with even a little discernment contend that a rider capable of following the principles of a good school is not also more capable of rendering obedient a horse intended for war and for suppling and giving stamina to a horse adjudged suitable for the hunt. The principles of dressage reached out to the utilitarian horses, not the other way around. Later, dressage training was even broken down to various levels, so that a horse intended for other uses could stop at a more basic level. Dressage as a scored sport went on to become the antithesis of Pluvenel's instruction, which instilled in the young nobleman such ideals as honour, courage, pride and virtue, the qualities of classical humanism. Furthermore, it became infected with the worst political viruses. In his book, The Art of Dressage, Alwar Padaski chronicled the judging of dressage at the Olympic Games from its first appearance at Stockholm in 1912. The early equestrian Olympics were completely dominated by military men. Judging politics and jingoism quickly took over. Of the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, Padaski wrote, Every one of the five judges had one or more compatriots among the competitors. Three judges placed their countrymen first, three placed them second. One rider, who was placed second by his fellow countrymen, ranked 17th, 20th and twice in 21st place in the scores of the other four judges. This was in a group of 29 contestants from 11 nations. Any further comment is superfluous. Incidents continued, indignation ebbed and flowed until a point was reached after the 1956 Olympics where the International Olympic Committee was about to eliminate dressage altogether from the Olympic Games. Even higher political intrigues continued in order to reinstate it, but the problems continued to the present. International competitor John Winnett has written about the concept of redlining, a solid arrangement of the top ten competitors arrived at only after international judges see a combination many times at selected shows. This is a barrier so controlled that it is virtually unbreachable by a newcomer. Preferential halo effects by well-known riders at small competitions are a phenomenon experienced by anyone who has gone to a horse show. Are dressage judges more corrupt than judges of jumpers? Or is it more a case of patching and repairing an old machine over and over 
a machine that has a fundamental design flaw and cannot work correctly. Dressage as sport seemed to be a machine built, whether intentionally or not, without the use of prior research, and it was built in the vacuum of the European militaries. And I will be continuing this series of extracts from Paul Balasic's book over the next few weeks. In the meantime, you can find out more about Paul's books on his website at paulbalasic.com. The FEI Reem Accra World Cup qualifying competitions have now concluded around the world. The finals are, of course, going to be held in Hetogenbosch, the Netherlands, from the 18th to the 22nd of April. So just over a month away from that. And uh, the leader of Western European League is Sweden's Patrick Kittel. In second place, Helen Langen-Hannenberg. And in third place, Valentina Trupper. And I'll bring you a preview of that FEI Remacra World Cup final in Hetogenbosch as we get closer to the event. And uh, as the winter season wraps up, the indoor season over there in Europe as well. And all eyes will be focused on Greenwich shortly after that as the riders start to make their plans for the outdoor season. Well, looking at the standings for dressage around the world, we've had so many of those riders as guests here on the show, but there's still many that we have not had. So I'd love to hear from you if there's anyone that you would like to hear from whom we have not had on the Dressage Radio Show over the past few years. And uh, let me know why you've selected those. And you can post those on our Facebook fan page. Just look for Dressage Radio and uh, click on the fan page there and post your comments. And you can also, of course, email me at chris at horseradionetwork.com and let me know who you would like to hear from or any other stories, in fact, from around the world of dressage. And there are always opportunities for sponsorship here on the show. So if you know anyone who would like to be involved in supporting this show that's brought to you every week by the Horse Radio Network, then do drop us a line, chris at horseradionetwork.com. And if you'd like to support our exclusive Olympic coverage this summer, then we'd love to have you on board. Just send me an email and we'll explain to you how you can too can be part of that exclusive Olympic coverage here on the Dressage Radio Show. And that is our show for this week. I will be back, of course, at the same time, same place next week with more news, views and interviews from around the world of dressage. So until then, thank you all for listening.